So I was reading an article recently by a writing uh, coach uh, who was explaining the importance of having really good antagonists in your story. Uh, Apparently stories are much more interesting if you have someone who is opposing the hero throughout the story. And it occurred to me that uh, as satisfying as antagonism might be in stories, uh, when it happens in real life, (laughs) it's completely miserable. Um, I've talked to lots of you that are in really tough work situations where it just seems like there's somebody you work with who wakes up in the morning trying to find some way to make your life miserable that day. Um, you know, they needle you. They're never impressed by what you do. <laughs> I had a friend one time who used to joke that there just seem to be some people who have the spiritual gift of discouragement. <laughs> We're looking this fall at the uh, birth pangs of God's formation of a people, this, this providential gathering of the people of God. And thus far, we've seen him make these massive promises about where they're heading and what he's going to do for them as they do. But all of a sudden, no sooner have things started than things start to go wrong. Pharaoh, it turns out, isn't really all that keen uh, on letting these, uh, uh, or the economic windfall that he's enjoying uh, uh, be given up because of these, uh, sl- these slave uh, Hebrews. And at first, his wave of antagonism, though, I think has something important to teach us uh, that'll be applicable even long after Pharaoh's gone. And I think you can see this oftentimes when you consider the Psalms. I wonder how many times you've come across a Psalm where oftentimes the hymn writers will complain about unfair treatment from the hands of vengeful and hateful people. I, I literally flipped through the Psalms almost at random and came across Psalm 69 and read this in verse 4. He says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me and those who attack me with lies. You ever feel that way? (laughs) Lord, I'm surrounded by antagonists. Save me from these people. But what's fascinating about these exact same psalms is how often the antagonism that comes from the outside is immediately followed from junk coming up from the inside. That is, once you start to feel harassed by the externals in your life, Pretty soon the things that are inside your heart start to come up and do the same thing. Stuff just doesn't work out like it used to. And that's exactly what happens in Psalm 69 in the very next verse. Oh God, you know my folly, for the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Look, this is just a huge principle to grasp because I think the same thing could be said for a local church. Because there really are, there are two great enemies to any local church remaining relatively peaceful. On the one hand, there are attacks from the outside. But on the other hand, there are discouragements and disagreements from the inside. What's so amazing is they often come hand in hand, don't they? I've had the the distinct displeasure of standing on the sidelines and watching uh, a number of of church splits happen. When everybody disagrees and gossip begins to team through people who used to be really good friends. And I can assure you there's probably nothing that's more miserable than that. I read one writer one time who said, you know, the church can sometimes be a little like Noah's Ark. Uh, If it weren't for the rain outside, you couldn't stand the stench inside. Well, cynical, bear with me. But today I want to add one more plank to our understanding of what it means to be the people of God by seeing a people opposed. Because if we're going to properly be formed into what God is making us as a church, we have to have insight on how to handle opposition. But we're going to see the great physician bring healing in a lot of different ways. So two real basic points this morning. Opposition from the outside, without, 
and opposition from within. And then maybe a couple of words of encouragement from God at the end. First of all, let's look at this opposition from without. Because, you know, chapter 5, verse 2 contains that sort of like a, ooh, like you really shouldn't have said that moment in the book of Exodus, right? (laughs) Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Now, we all kind of know what's coming, but we buckle up for it. And the commentators agree that there's a note of sarcasm in his tone here. You kind of half expect a bolt of lightning to come and zap the poor man. Uh, But instead, he remains silent for a time. Why? Well, the first thing I want you to realize is that Pharaoh's question uh, is framed not as someone who is speaking as a religious atheist, one who believes that there is no God, but rather I would submit he's standing from the perspective of a religious pluralist. Now, what in the world is that? Well, a pluralist believes in a plurality of gods. There are gods for this, there's gods for that. Um, And I I don't think you have to be an accomplished archaeologist to know that at this particular time, Egypt was loaded with monuments to various Egyptian deities. um, There's gods all over the place. Uh, But here, these these simpleton little people who are coming and daring to suggest that their god is the god, really? And so what Pharaoh is saying is not, I don't believe your god exists. But what he's saying is, why should I change the way that I understand how the gods work for the way you live? You know, look, if you want to have your God, that's great. Just put them over there in Goshen and mind your own business. You've got your way, I've got mine, live and let live, he's saying. Well, my point is, Pharaoh would kind of fit in kind of nicely in contemporary American religious culture, would he not? Because it's really not atheism that as as much debated in sort of the public kind of popular culture sphere. Rather, the vast majority of people have come to agree that there really ought to be some kind of spiritual force out there behind the the, the universe. The question, rather, has become, which conception of God have you chosen for yourself? And what steps are you taking to ensure that those around you respect the decision that you've made to think of God that way? In other words, there's many views of spirituality here, but there's absolutely no reason why someone should abandon their particular way of thinking for someone else's way of thinking about God. Because that would make you, you know, a proselytizer, right? And that implies disrespect for people's freedom. We live in the generation of you do you. It's the ultimate definition of what we are here. My point is, this is what Pharaoh is voicing, though. You're not going to come rolling up here into Egypt and suggest this Yahweh character is the one true God. And so... This generation's most poignant questions about God are the same. It's how does Christianity fit within this almost polytheism of worldviews that are all around us, if it fits at all? Well, in many ways, we really can't answer that question for a skeptic until we get to next week's discussion, which are going to be about the plagues. But this morning, I just want to focus on the fact that what this religious environment did to these people was to highlight their slavery. It was difficult and actually resulted in one of the more sad ironies of anti-Christian opposition. Because think about this, Moses and Aaron's initial attempt to sort of extract some relief out of Pharaoh, it, it fails miserably. <laughs> because rather than laying off of him, you know, it says in, in, in uh, Exodus 5 that all he does is make life more miserable, you know, with the whole uh, bricks without straw legislation that he gets passed. People cry out in pain and suffering while the the gods of Egypt just stand idly by. In other words, 
religious pluralism of the Egyptians didn't result in greater freedom for the Hebrews to worship Yahweh, but rather it gave them a heightened sense of their own bondage. How could that happen? Well, the claim that Christianity is the unique God, the only God, you'll find puts a Christian in a very difficult social setting. Because I I realize that it seems so enlightened and so forward-thinking when someone responds to you this way, look, come on. (laughs) I mean, Christianity is just one way to heaven. We're all worshiping the same God. Why should Christianity think that it's got the one way? That's my problem with you you Christians is you, you always have to be so exclusive. You know the one way to get to God. I wonder if you ever heard anybody vocalize things that way. My guess is in a room this large, just some of you, if we're pressed, would sort of espouse just such a view. But I kind of want to zero something important in that way of thinking, because my premise is that if you're the kind of person who gets your feathers ruffled when someone claims that their way of viewing God is the way to the exclusion of others, have you ever noticed that your response almost always results in just another form of exclusivity. In other words, the moment that you offer an alternative way to view the universe, you yourself have offered a view of the universe, which, believe it or not, is just as exclusive. Let me see if I can throw a couple of examples at you. The first one I remembered was a conversation I had with a friend uh, in college who had uh, recently returned from traveling abroad to other countries. And while he was there, uh, he really struggled with why these people who seem to be so nice and so friendly um, would somehow be condemned uh, because they sincerely followed what he called the God of their own understanding. If they're sincere in what they believe, why don't they get to go to heaven too, he asked. Uh, But you know, I think oftentimes people rarely put a lot of thought into that response. Because haven't you just exchanged the standards that the Christian God puts for being in right relationship with him for a new standard of, well, at least in his case, sincerity? In in that view, his view, only the sincere people are acceptable or doing the right thing or get to go to heaven. Okay, well, what about the insincere religious person? Aren't they just as excluded in your open worldview? Look, I want to be really careful how I use this next illustration because I think I felt a considerable amount of... um, appropriate national pride uh, in the victory that our U.S. women's soccer team had in the World Cup this year. My point's not to take any shots against them. But there was an interesting news piece that came out afterwards about one of the players by the name of Jaylene Hinkle. Uh, Apparently, Hinkle had refused to wear uh, an LGBT jersey uh, uh, because of her beliefs uh, about human sexuality. And she was consequently uh, cut from the team. Well, in response to that, uh, goalkeeper Ashlyn Harris tweeted, (laughs) along with a bona fide Twitter storm, something like this. He said, Hinkle, our team is about inclusion. Now stop there for a second, okay? That's the spirit of Pharaoh. Live and let live, she's saying. We're about acceptance of all type of people. We're not like those bigots who have exclusive claims over truth. But listen to the very next line of the tweet. You would never fit into our pack or what this team stands for. Do you you see the contrast there? And again, this has nothing to do with my endorsement of U.S. women's soccer. I'm thrilled with it. I just want you to see how hard it is to maintain a view of religion that is based on an idea of being non-exclusive 
without becoming exclusive yourself. The question is, that's a, that's a dead end road. Now look, I realize that religious types like ourselves, we love illustrations like that, don't we? Because we're above it all, right? But I think we're capable of making the exact same mistake even in religious circles. There's a lot of quarters of American Christianity right now that are questioning the exclusive claims of Jesus. I mean, whether or not he's the only way. Uh, they long for openness towards all types of people, even those who, who don't claim for Jesus to be the savior of their sins. You know, years ago, I read an interview with uh, uh, Bishop um, uh, Gene Robinson, who was the first openly gay bishop within the uh, Anglican American communion. Now, look, this is not a sermon today about what the Bible does and does not say about homosexuality. It's a different sermon. But I want you to notice from this article that I was reading about two questions that were placed side by side that an interviewer did with a good bishop. Question, is a split within the Anglican church inevitable? Answer, I think the world is perceiving us as wildly polarized, when in fact, the vast majority of this church is squarely in the middle. If those who oppose us could just recognize that the Jesus we know is the Jesus they know, we'll find a way through this. Sounds reasonable. Sounds fairish, right? Question. Next question, by the way. How do you reconcile what the Bible says about homosexuality with your lifestyle? Answer. The people who are taking the Bible literally are absolutely outside the Anglican tradition. Again, I'm not saying anything about the worldwide Anglican communion's take on same-sex marriage this morning. That's not the point. I just want you to see how quickly claims of non-exclusivity can turn exclusive. It's hard. Now look, what's the point for us? Well, my contention is simply this. Is that the opposition that we so often face from outside of the church will usually eat its own tail if you follow that thinking to its logical end. To be honest with you, it actually takes the privacy of close, intimate friendships, you know, the kind that we're hoping to nurture here in the church, to expose that way of thinking and, and maybe offer a better way. So that's the opposition from the outside, this sort of uh, syncretistic uh, pluralism, right? But then we find that there's opposition that comes from within as well. Because none of this matters to our hapless Hebrews, do it. <laughs> All they know is that they're languishing underneath the oppression of these terrible Egyptian people. So much so, they can't even hear Yahweh anymore. You know, in chapter 6, verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. It's been too long. You know, we've been at the mercy of these foreign gods so that they can't even recognize when salvation comes their way. And by the way, even Moses has begun to doubt. Didn't have time to read it, but in chapter 5, verse 22, he says this. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? I love it when he says that. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. You have not even delivered your people at all. It's crumbling, right? And so God does come to answer. But notice, Exodus 6 is not the answer to Pharaoh's question. His answer is to these doubting, bound people of God. And this is where you encounter a thing that you have to remember if you're going to make any progress in understanding exactly what these people are going through. And it simply goes like this. The longer the enslavement, the more entrenched the, the thinking patterns of enslaved people remain. Look, the sons of Jacob have been in Egypt now for 400 years. And you just don't get over that quickly. I mean, even when salvation is staring them right in the face, 
It's almost like they've got zero internal resources to even be able to believe that what God is telling them is true. Look, over and over again, as you follow these people, I promise you, you're going to get tempted to get frustrated with them. (laughs) Seriously, you're doubting God again? But again, it's a powerful lesson that honestly, I feel like it takes a mature Christian to really understand the fact that change, change comes slowly, even among God's people. Because the condition of the human heart is such that rarely, if ever, do you sort of wave a magic wand over someone's soul and instantly their struggle disappears. I know you're all thinking of a friend or even people that I know who who say that, no, no, God did something miraculous in me. I mean, it was dark and boom, it was light and nothing was the same. Not doubting that that happens at all. But for the most part, experience is God's school for the most part. I don't know, do you find yourself getting frustrated that our church isn't better? Do you find yourself getting frustrated that you aren't better? Because perhaps one of the sources of frustration is that we've never fully grasped that prior to God working in our hearts, we were deep in the bonds of slavery. And those bonds have a complexity and a longevity to them that create sin patterns that, that permeated all kinds of nooks and crannies in my heart that I don't even notice oftentimes until I'm much older. This is one of the things I found the hardest about getting older. Um, I'm, part of a, uh, I'm part of a listserv that's full of a, a bunch of pastors, uh, many of which are my age. And it's a great sort of email resource for people because guys can be sort of vulnerable there and kind of bare their soul. And that, uh, that opportunity cost a friend of mine to write a post a couple of months ago about what it was like to turn 50, which I had only just done myself. In the middle of his post, he said, you know, I'm just wrestling with this whole thing because I just thought that by this time, I'd be holier. I I thought my motives would be purer and and that my heart would be more true and that my choices would be better, but they're not. You ever feel that way? (laughs) Where can you find encouragement as you age and are continually disappointed in your own failure to live up to what God has called you to be? That's a great question. Because I think Exodus 6 is the answer to that question. And I can say it briefly. Yahweh does, Yahweh brings encouragement to these people by introducing them to his promises. And look, right out of the gate, you've got a clue to the answer to that question. You don't get encouragement about your failed spiritual life from inside of you. You get encouragement by looking to his faithfulness. That's the answer. Phil Riken makes a great little textual note that those uh, verses 6 through 8 in chapter 6, Moses writes down seven I wills of God, of what he will do for his people. He says the first two talk about liberation Salvation is freedom from whatever you're serving now to the one you were made to serve, Yahweh. The third I will talks about redemption. That God is going to force the Egyptians to pay the price that it costs to bring the Hebrews out. The next two I wills talk about the promise of adoption. That God is going to take covenant ownership of his people. That they're going to have his protection as a father over them. The final two I wills talk about a future possession where God talks about how he's going to take them as a people and bring joy to them once he gets the land that he's preparing for them. 
Do you see what he's doing? <laughs> he's giving these people over and over again the highest possible assurance that he can give them that he's going to bring about these things. I'm, you're in my hands. I know you can't see it, but these promises are here to keep you from getting discouraged. If we had time to read on in chapter 6, you would find something that you want to think, how is that encouraging? Because at one point, Moses decides he's going to throw in a genealogy. Well, of course, why wouldn't you have to do a quick genealogy in the middle of Exodus 6? Ah, but there's something interesting here. If you really dig into it, you're going to see God backing up his promises. Because notice the genealogy begins with the sons of Jacob, but it ends with a guy named Phineas. Now remember, the story of Exodus was written down years after it all actually happened. And the generation of people that saw these things come down had long, long since died out. So when you read on, you find out that this character, Phineas, was a very significant figure. There probably weren't a lot of people that were a more significant kind of folk hero to the people that were alive at the time of this writing than Phineas. You know, he had killed the enemies of, the true worship, of true worship at Numbers 25. He commanded an army during Israel's battle with the Midianites in Numbers 31. Uh, he was actually allowed to enter the promised land and not die out with the rest of them, we learn in the book of Judges. And he also ends up being the one who helps sort of create peace between warring factions in Joshua 22. Phineas was the man in the eyes of these people. And so you see what Moses is doing by telling this story? <laughs> he's saying, this is where the family of Jacob is heading. In other words, he's backing up the promises that God has just made. Yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it all for you. And you're going to know it because I'm going to bring you a hero. Just like Phineas. You see, says Moses, God is faithful to everything that he promised. That's the encouragement that comes in the midst of this. Okay, a couple little pieces of application before we finish. The first is this. I do realize it's painfully easy to forget that prior to coming and meeting Jesus for the first time, your life was, was one of bondage. So easy to forget that. And Exodus 6, 9, I think, says that just like surgery, stuff usually starts to feel worse before it gets better. This is something that's very hard to understand. You know, we can't see God's picture, but this is just his habit. I mean, think about Abraham. You know, Abraham gets promises he's going to have a child, but by the age of 99, he's still got nothing. Even Joseph, poor Joseph, gets promised that his brothers are going to serve him. And where does he wind up? In an Egyptian prison. To some degree, even Jesus is an example of this, isn't he? This is one who has the absolute blessing of God on his life, and yet he ends up being executed. Now, you and I know how the story ends, but the people that were there didn't. It didn't feel that way. Look, have you ever found yourself stopping and saying, what is up with this God? Why doesn't he just instantly sanctify his people? Why won't he snap his fingers and resolve all of the problems that we have in this church or in this body? Hmm. Well, perhaps it's because he wants you to know that it's his salvation and not yours. That this whole thing is about his glory and not mine. Which way does the universe work? Which brings me to a second point. Because that genealogy, I hope it sounded a little bit familiar to us. <laughs> because Moses is going to his people and he's saying, hey, my best encouragement I can give to you is that there is a Savior. It's almost as if he's saying, you know, you need a hero. Someone who is zealous for God's house. Who will lead you into the promised land. You know, today you know about Phineas, but in that day, a true and better Phineas will come. 
and zeal for his father's house will consume him too. And he will make peace between the warring factions in your own heart. And one day he's going to come back and bring you to the real promised land, of which this land is just a foretaste. You see what he's saying? In the meantime, you have a champion who is going to come and walk you through every single step in the midst of your helplessness. That's the encouragement. So Lauren Taylor is a young woman who is confined to a wheelchair because of some debilitating disease. She didn't mention what it was in the article I was reading. But she wrote an article last summer about how she's managed to cope with it all. And she says it's really simple. It's because of her dad. Listen to what she says. She says, you know, when I began to receive my diagnoses, my dad's determination became my safety net. His role as a dad changed when my illness became more severe. He went from coaching me at home in the sports that I played and helping me with homework to fighting for adequate health care and educating himself on medical terms. Instead of cheering me on from stadium bleachers and taking runs with me around the neighborhood, he cheered me on as I made progress in my physical therapy. Today, he cheers me on as I persevere to the end of my college degree, and he pushes me in my wheelchair when I'm too weak to continue. When I was discouraged and ready to quit, he fought for me and helped me to negotiate a clear path to finishing. He stayed in my college town seven hours from his own home, after a long hospital admission. He washed my hair when I couldn't do it myself. He allowed me to lay on his shoulder and cry during hard moments and made sure I was given adequate nutrition and sleep. He gave me the perfect balance of gentleness, care, and tough love. I was able to complete that semester with excellent grades because my dad wasn't ready to give up on me, even when I thought I wasn't capable of finishing. He's lifted me up during times of weakness and spoken truth over the lies that clouded my mind. He has reached into the dark places and shed light on him. He whispers, just a little further, when I don't think I can go any further. He believes in me deeply and reminds me of who I am when I forget my own worth or potential. He helps me to find my smile when I think it's gone. He makes me laugh. He holds my hand in the hardest days, and he helps me live a little braver and stand a little taller. She actually finishes the article by saying that her father has been the ultimate pointer to God's love for her. The ultimate champion who fights for her, whether her opposition is coming from without or whether it's coming from within. So here's the answer to the question. How do we handle opposition that our church is going to face as it goes forward and you know it's coming? Do not expect that the city of Oxford is going to stand by and applaud for you as you uphold the exclusive claims of Christ. And even if they do, there's more than enough sinners in this room to do us in from the inside out, I promise you, starting with me. But the way Jesus empowers us to be the people of God, despite those kind of challenges, is by being our salvation for us, wholly and completely. So our hope this morning is not to cross our fingers and hope that we don't mess things up. No, because we are going to mess things up. No, we look to him for his provision. Is that your view? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you give us those eyes? Fathers, to be honest with you, we, we don't look at you in the way in which this young lady looked at her father. We don't see your helping hand at every step. 
How indeed we are those crippled people needing to be helped with the simplest of tasks so that in the end it all goes to your glory, that it all becomes something that we are absorbed in you. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us this morning a a vision of what we will be in that day, that we will feast in the house of Zion, that there'll be a day when we will weep no more because we will look back and say that you, you have done great things. Would you lead us into that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.